Hi, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hello, and welcome to the 18th episode of the Polit podcast, the podcast for political posits. I hope you're all well and in good health. It's been a week, two weeks since the last episode, which was with Dr. Georg Löffelmann from the University of Warwick, discussing populism and populist foreign policy. If you haven't already done so, go and take a listen to episode 17. It's a really good episode. Alongside that, since the last episode, the website has had a refurbishment, so it looks all nice and new. (laughs) Go check it out if you're in the mood for a think. And if you are in the mood for a think, think Pollitt at www.thinkpollitt.com. Nice and easy to remember. So go check out the website, like, share and subscribe. And also, please don't forget to follow the podcast on whatever platform you're using so that the next episode just automatically appears in your library. (laughs) Okay, so this week I'm joined by Anna Maria Angelescu who is a PhD candidate in political science at the National University of Political Studies and Public Administration in Bucharest. Their PhD thesis concerns Romania's relations with Europe and Central Asia whilst exploring the theoretical lens of neoclassical realism in international relations. Okay, so Anna Maria, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me and uh, for such a nice introduction. <laughs> no problem at all. So the first question I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind, is just in case any of the listeners aren't familiar uh, with different kinds of international relations theory, would you be able to explain what neoclassical realism is? Sure. Thank you for the question. Is It is actually very interesting because this is how we start the seminar on uh, international relations theories I'm at my university. So um, I like to start with a metaphor, let's say. Uh, Do you believe in free will or do you believe in destiny? And I really think this captures how we should see the theories of international relations. Because we have theories that are more like uh, placing states on a certain path because of the anarchic system, So uh, the international system is anarchic because there is no superior authority above the states to impose them what to do, like the government is inside the state. So there's this anarchic system that places states on a certain path that's like a destiny for uh, ourselves. Or there are theories that really believe that there's some sort of free will at the level of the states. So, which means that there are uh, the decision makers at the uh, internal level uh, are really making their own choices um, and uh, they are the ones responsible for how the states act in the international system. And for the more structural theories, the ones that believe in destiny, let's say, uh, we have usually the realist theories and most of all it's the neorealist theories and if you're familiar with the international relations theories you know for sure about Kenneth Waltz he's the father of neorealism 
But there are also theories that are less structural and that are more uh, related to um, the institutions at the level of the state. As I said, foreign policymakers, uh, how the state is structured. And we have here classical realism uh, is uh, connected to how decision makers can make decisions, what's happening uh, inside the state, what's the moral status, what's the foreign policy architecture inside the state. Um, of course, besides the realist theories, we have liberal theories, constructivist theories, and all of them try to capture why the state is acting in such a way in the international system that we get to work or we don't get to work in a certain threat position. And Neoclassical realism is a very beautiful theory because I, I believe it, uh, it's, it's better suited to explain how states work because it's as it is with us, the persons, we don't really believe in destiny, but we also don't believe we have absolute free will. And that's what neoclassical realism says also. So we are on a certain path, the states are on a certain path given by the anarchic system but as well, there are decision makers there who have to interpret what's happening at the international level. What's the level of threat? What's the level of communication of information that I have? And with those, I have as a decision maker to make a decision about my state. Should I go to war? Should I become an ally of that state? Should I join an international organization? And so on and so forth. So neoclassical realism places a transmission belt between the international level and the national level, which is something that was argued to be uh, an error of methodology, um, uh, which was argued to be um, a problem for a, a theory. But I believe this is the strength of the theory. So neoclassical realism uh, helps us to see structural factors that are interpreted through the um, personal and institutional mechanism at the national level uh, and to uh, see how states really adapt to these um, this, uh, pressures. So, for example, let's say um, it's not enough to uh, think as neorealists would say that states would balance because that's what uh, anarchy would, uh, would pressure them to do is the rational um, behavior for states. Uh, it's not enough to know that we have to see what's inside. If the states are uh, democracies, they would balance with democracies. They would ally themselves with democracies, even if they are not in a real balancing uh, behavior. We have to see what's the personal understanding of the decision makers to see if the balancing will occur in that um, prescribed way or in another manner. So this is why there are differences. And neoclassical realism uh, is quite a new theory. It uh, started to be developed per se, um, like in the past 30 years, but the name was uh, put in 1998 by Gideon Rose in an article. He said that these kind of theories are neoclassical and it's neoclassical because it's kind 
that goes back to, to classical realism, to Hans Morgenthau, and how he saw the, um, uh, the behavior of the states, but uh, gives more um, structure to the arguments, what Waltz argued for. So I think this is what neoclassical realism is, is a theory um, that can be used to explain foreign policy of the states. It's not an, uh, really an international politi politics uh, theory. And I, I do believe that um, neoclassical realism is a very flexible theory. Uh, because you, uh, there are various authors that lean more on institutional analysis at the uh, internal level or more on uh, foreign policy analysis, like the personal characteristics of the decision makers. Okay, fascinating. That's a really good answer. <laughs> That's a really good answer that that you know has me has me thinking. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, one of the things that I take from that is the the discussion that Kenneth Waltz has, I believe it's in Theory of International Politics, where he talks about uh, states being like black boxes, this this idea of the, you know, the internal um, uh, dimension of a state isn't necessarily as important to its structuring. And I think that you've just kind of uniquely addressed how neoclassical realism takes into account the the domestic dimension in relationship to foreign policy. So that's really interesting. So I have a question on the back of that, which is, can you speak a little bit to how you have done by talking about Morgenthau, but um, uh, can you add a little bit more as to how what neoclassical realism takes from classical realism? Um, as you've sort of explained its relationship with neorealism, uh, but can you speak a little bit more to its similarities and differences to classical realism? Yes, of course. Uh... Thank you for the question. So we have in Morgenthau the epitome of classical realists. And the classical realists just look at how the states are um, behaving in the international system. Uh, but they are opening this black box that Kenneth Waltz is talking uh, about. At the same time, neoclassical realism uh, argues that there is something happening inside the states. There are decision makers, that there are, there's the individual level, there's the state level where uh, there are interactions going on. There's foreign policy decision making going on inside the state. Uh, but at the same time, there's the, the pressure of the international system is it is very important, but it's not the one, uh, it's just a um, permissive condition, let's say, for the behavior of the states. It's not the one that has, uh, is uh, the one with the uh, most um, influence in the causal re uh, relation. So for Morgenthau, the interest of the states was mostly related to power. We need to have more power for the sake of it. So the power was the main goal of the state. Whereas for Waltz and neorealists, you had power in order to get security. So in order to survive, that's why anarchy uh, gave a prize of survival to those states that knew how to behave, so to balance. Mm -hmm. For Morgenthau, there's, the states can be different 
that's why he talks about the quality of diplomacy the uh, moral aspects of the uh, population so if the population is resilient or it is uh, is not this means that the states behave uh, behave in a certain way because they know how they should um, they can draw power from the resilience of their nations or not so for morgenthau he spends uh, quite a lot uh, in his book talking about um in his book, book politics among nations he spends quite a long time talking about what is power made of and we can see that by analyze, uh, analyzing the elements of power at the, at the national level, that actually states are different because some of them have bigger populations, some of them have bigger military power, some of them have bigger economic power. And Morgenthau talks about everything. These are more, let's say, more objective measures, but as I said, he talks about the quality of governance, quality of diplomacy. Those are more like constructivist, if you would say, more constructivist elements because it's uh, it's more subjective. It's more difficult to measure them. And by uh, talking about so many elements of power, we see that states are not so um, not so similar as Waltz argued. Waltz, we remember from his theory, he said that the international system is anarchic and the units, uh, ergo the states, are non-differentiating functionally. And that is why we shouldn't talk about what's inside the states. But Morgenthau says, no, actually power is very different. Mm. States accumulate power in very different way. And this is what neoclassical realism actually says too. Because there are foreign policy decision makers that make decisions uh, regarding how they allocate their resources towards a certain goal. So if you are a powerful state, you know how to efficiently allocate your resources in order to better deal with the pressures and the international system. But if you are not a very good decision maker, you won't be able to do that. That's why they open up the black box, but they don't put there something very different from the classical realism that Morgenthau talked about. Okay, that's also a fantastic answer. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I was sort of um, uh, thinking when you were talking about that, I was thinking about, I can't remember whether it's in Politics Among Nations, which, as you say, is is the one of the key texts, if not the key text by Hans Morgenthau, or whether it was um, a Scientific Man versus Power Politics, where he talks about how um, when we say that Russia has acted in a particular way, or when we say America yeah. has acted in a particular way, what we're actually saying in that is that a specific set of individuals have acted in a certain way, and those individuals are sort of in a discourse with norms. So, yes, yeah, so I really like that, that um, uh, sort of underground tunnel or that underground connection uh, you've just sort of explained uh, between uh, classical realism, neoclassical realism and sort of norms formation and you said sort of almost constructivist -y <laughs> in a certain way so I really like that I think that's really interesting. Okay so I have a quote uh, by Jeffrey uh, Taliaferro uh, from a 2006 article he wrote in Security Studies um, and I just want to know if you'd be able to unpack this for us. So the quote is, 
Anarchy's competition and socialization effects provide no single guide or set of best practices for how states ought to arrange their domestic processes to maximize their probability of survival. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us and uh, uh, just delve into how all of this discussion of neoclassical realism fits in with your own research? Sure, thank you. The quote is actually very interesting and I think it really relates to what we were talking about, about anarchy and about foreign policy decision makers. So as we said, Kenneth Waltz was saying in neorealism that anarchy is driving the states to adapt some, to adapt some rational behaviors in order to survive. But what Taliaferro is saying, and he is one of the, um, the fathers, let's say, of neoclassical realism. He's one of the uh, best-known authors, uh, together with uh, uh, Ripsman and Lobel. He wrote two textbooks on neoclassical realism, one in 2009 and one in uh, 2016. Uh, so in this quote, he's actually... Um, nuancing what Waltz is saying, because indeed, anarchy is determining states to act, because it's, put, it's putting a lot of pressure on them. There are various choices that states are uh, faced with, and they have to choose among various uh, outcomes. But at the same time, it's not the competition in anarchy, it's not the self-help. It's not the socialization that, that we have uh, because of the history between the states that's making them choose what, what's the best practice uh, in order to survive. So I think this quote is very much a, um, a nuancing and also a distancing from Ken what Kenneth Waltz was saying. Because in neorealism, as I said, we have the maximizing the potential of uh, survival. But we also have, Waltz was saying that in order to, for the states to survive, they have to balance externally, so they have to ally against the threat, or they can balance internally. And he was saying something a little bit about what this um, internal balancing would mean, like to emulate so to copy what other states would do, to adapt a bit what they were doing, or to totally innovate, and uh, or to just stay on the same track as you were before. But what Talia Ferro is saying is that that's not only the result of the anarchic pressures. The system is not telling you to do internal balancing. It's what you decide to do as a foreign policy decision maker. As you said about Morgenthau, it's a set of individuals that are then in power and they choose to do that. So I really think this quote more uh, gives us more uh, relation to constructivism, for example. Of course, I would put some neoclassical realists on my, um, against me by saying this, but... I really believe that because, you know, Alexander Bent said that anarchy is what states make of it. And I think this is it. So as not, uh, we have some 
anarchic pressures. Uh, the system is pressuring the states to adapt, but the foreign policy decision makers are the ones that make out of that anar anarchy pressures what they should do. So this is how neoclassical realism is saying that the states should adapt in the international system. And I actually used Talia Ferro's um, theory uh, or model of explaining how states behave in my um, PhD thesis. And uh, it's a, a great pride to talk about my PhD thesis four years in the making. Uh, so I would say that um, neoclassical realism is very good to, uh, at explaining why the states in Central and Eastern Europe joined the European Union and uh, NATO after the collapse of the Soviet Union or the collapse of their communist uh, regimes. Because um, we had some systemic pressures. We, we shouldn't be uh, fooling ourselves. The, the collapse of Soviet Union and the fact that the communist regimes were collapsing was not only due to the internal pressures, there was also a systemic evolution inside that. So those systemic pressures were determining those states to position themselves. So they would stay neutral, they would stay close to Russia, or they would join the uh, European Union and NATO as the, I don't know, let's say the main actors that spread the new hegemons, the new global hegemons ideas. So they chose the foreign policy decision makers interpreted these changes in the international system and they adapted their um, uh, policies. So it, it was emulation towards what the other states, more successful states, the Western European ones, were doing up to that point. Hmm. So this is how I used neoclassical realism, but I also used it to argue that there are differences in how these Central and Eastern European states are behaving. Because um, there's also um, in uh, Talia Ferro's model, he talks about national power is one thing and state power is another thing. Um, not all states are capable of mobilizing the same power. But at the same time, why they are not so able? Because sometimes they have different systemic pressures on them. So if you are a state that's more close to a threat in, uh, and you are more exposed to external threats, you are just, maybe you are forced to mobilize better, to adapt your decision-making and the, uh, your power in order to fulfill your goal of survival and protecting yourself. But on the other hand, you may be not uh, uh, very uh, well adapted because you have to deal with that threat first and foremost and then with your other um, priorities. So for example, in Eastern Europe, the states that are uh, really at the edge, at the border, of the eastern border of the European Union, they have more threats than the ones that are 
let's say, a bit more uh, inside the European Union. So, for example, I, I compared the power of um, Romania with the other states in the European Union. And, and I was trying to, to find out whether Romania is a middle power. So unfortunately, I, I, I checked, uh, I did a quantitative analysis and uh, I checked various indexes and I could see that Romania is, it may be a middle power, but is a weak one. And I, uh, in order to see why is this happening, I did a qualitative analysis. And for this, I used neoclassical realism. And I said, the, I, found, I found out actually that the uh, structural pressures in the Black Sea area, in the wider Black Sea area, were far stronger than, let's say, if you are in, in Central Europe. So you, know, you have to, um, in order to really become a middle power and to really influence whatever is happening in that region, you you have to have a lot of power. And we had some struggles internally. We were not so um, able to mobilize our resources at the internal level for the our foreign policy action. And this I tested through our relations with Central Asia, which I deemed a region of interest because it's not very close to the European Union. So the the pressures of neighborhood weren't that uh, important there, but at the same time, it's not very far to make it less uh, disengaged from the member states. So it's quite um, a, a very, it was a very challenging research going from a quantitative position to argue why Romania is a weak middle power, and then to see how it was acting in order to sustain its effort at the foreign policy level. And this is how I showed actually that, okay, the Central and Eastern European states were having the same pressures, were, they were all competing for survival and they were trying to adapt their behaviors after the fall of their communist regimes. But some did better and are more visible and some did not do so well, and they can still improve their foreign policy making and their resource mobilization at the internal level. Okay, okay, very interesting. Very, very interesting. So I have a couple of questions that I'd just like to sort of um, uh, throw at you. <laughs> um, the first is, actually, I'll give them all to you and you can just sort of like, you know, um, pick and mix. You can take them as, as you like. The first one is, okay, so what do you, see? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you see as the future of Romanian foreign policy? Uh, would, do you see it going towards um, uh, Europe or away from Europe? Um, and alongside that, what do you think the future of European foreign policy will be towards, or European Union foreign policy will be towards um, Eastern Europe? We've seen in the last few weeks um, sort of increased um, uh, tensions between, or even in the last few years, we've seen increased tensions between uh, uh, Hungary with Orban and Poland and with Belarus in the last few weeks. Um, so how do you see the future of Romanian foreign policy and European foreign policy? I know that's a huge question, by the way. <laughs> yes, indeed. But I would say, 
I would start with the European foreign policy because it seems a bit easier. I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> I would argue that um, there's, there's a, a bright future for the European foreign policy. Excuse me, I'm an optimist. I, it may be misplaced, but I truly believe that uh, European foreign policy evolved quite a lot since its appearance. So while I was researching for my um, thesis, I started again to read about the history of foreign policy. And we started in the 50s with only little consultations. It wasn't any common position adopted at the European level. And we reached now a, a moment where there are 27 member states and we have uh, unanimity on some positions. Mm. We have strategies for how the European Union should interact with, with certain actors, with certain regions. And I think that's, that's great. That's a, a great step ahead. Of course, we are not United States. We are not a federation. Um, that's good or bad, depending on where you're standing on this. But I really believe that the foreign policy of the European Union is improving. However, there are some issues here because the more member states we have, the more possibilities for divergent views there are. And you mentioned yourself that you we have um, uh, Hungary, we have Poland and there are other states that are making decision, uh, decisions that are contradicting the European ideal, let's say, or um, the European interests, because they have their national interests. And from a neoclassical realist perspective, I would say that's normal, because after all, the European Union is just an international organization, and it is as powerful as the states make it. Mm. To be. So I would say that the European foreign policy is going in the right direction. And the events in Belarus showed that there's uh, room for making these um, decisions unanimously and all states to be on board with it. But at the same time, we saw that there are so, some discussions about Nord Stream or even the general relations with Russian Federation, there are some national interests that come slightly against the European norm. And that's where there's more to be uh, uh, done. And I, I, I certainly don't know how this should be done because um, foreign policy is a tricky subject. There are still the national states that are very, very strong against giving more power to the European Union for the foreign policy. Foreign policy remains a very important element of sovereignty. So if you give too much power to the high representative for foreign affairs, that's not very good for you as a state. But I would say that European foreign policy should be strengthened and i really think that there's this minimum 
level where we are now, so they find the uh, common ground at this minimum level, can be improved. I really do believe that states have more common interests mm -hmm. because they are all these European states are placed in a certain geographic and certain structural position towards the other great powers at the international level that they really have the same interests. So they have a common ground, which I believe is higher than the present common ground they found. And in this context, the Romanian foreign policy, I noticed happily in the last few years that we are really trying to um, not just proclaim ourselves as middle powers, a middle power. So just to, uh, to adopt in our um, strategies or governing programs or whatever document you see, something like um, a behavior that's specific to middle powers, uh, like mediators, um, the, um, uh, some supporters of the global hegemon's ideas or, um, or facilitator of decisions. It's not only that. So Romania really started to put content into these words. Mm. And I really believe that after uh, the annexation of Crimea, uh, after 2014, Romania started to really make an impression at the European level. Because we have in this, uh, in our foreign policy, a triad, let's say. We are first uh, European member states, mm -hmm. then we are NATO, NATO member states, and third, or not particularly in this order, we are strategic partners of the United States. And uh, we are always uh, uh, placing this at the forefront of all our um, uh, foreign policy decision-making, showing that we have this Euro-Atlantic vision of um, how things should be done. We really believe that um, it is important to have United States together with us. We, sh we, we are not for a decoupling between the United States and the European Union, and our discourse is very centered on this. And we are working on, uh, uh, on this front, let's say. That's why you didn't really see Romania in the bucket let's say, with Hungary and Poland. Um, they had very good relations with uh, the United States, but they were very, they, they are becoming very Eurosceptics. But that for us, it's, it's not. For us, the foreign policy is uh, built on these pillars of being EU-NATO members and uh, uh, strategic partners of the United States. And we also are using a lot um, the fact that we are geographically um, positioned uh, in the wider Black Sea area. We have an opening, we are at the, uh, at the eastern uh, uh, border of the European Union of NATO, and that gives perspective, that gives us an advantage. And I saw lately that we have many initiatives um, to strengthen the eastern flank, like Bucharest 9, 
is an um, informal um, meeting format of the nine countries on the eastern flank of uh, NATO. They are uh, discussing and they are meeting and they are agreeing on some common positions to uh, to share at the uh, at NATO level. And I really think that this shows why we have some structural pressures here. We are positioned in a certain area. We have we are very close to this new Eastern Europe, the or the Eastern Partnership countries. We are very close to Russian Federation. And these are our structural positions, uh, structural factors that are influencing, but we are making or not making use of it. I believe that in the past few years, we are making use of it, um, of them, and we are seeing an improvement uh, of our positioning in the uh, European uh, Union and NATO as well. So I'm quite optimistic about the European foreign policy and the Romanian foreign policy. A healthy dose of optimism there. I like it. <laughs> I like that a lot. We bounced around in the last half an hour from all different places, from talking about uh, Waltz and Vent and Morgenthau and Gideon Rose, all the way to talking about <laughs> Bucharest and talking about the uh, talking about East Asia and talking about Europe and the United States as well. So we've gone all over the place in the last half an hour, which is brilliant. I love that. <laughs> okay, so before we finish, I have two questions that I'd love to ask you, that I ask everybody that comes on, on to the podcast. Um, uh, the first question is, what do you understand as the political or like what is politics to you? That's a question I ask my students. So <laughs> I will try not to plagiarize them. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that political or politics is about the struggle for power. I'm a realist at heart and I really believe that there's a struggle for power. Um, in the national system, of course, we have hierarchy, and I think it's obvi obvious it's a struggle for power. But in the international system, we may be talking about norms, about the greater good or public goods lately. But I really do believe that what shapes what's a greater good or a public good is the struggle for power. I really think that the more powerful you are, the more able you are to influence what's the norm outside. Yeah, no, lovely answer. Lovely answer. So thank you very much for that. And very, very lastly, if any of the listeners want to read a little bit more about European foreign policy or Romanian foreign policy or neoclassical realism, who would you direct them to? What, which, what kind of literature would you push them towards? So for... Um... For neoclassical realism, there's, uh, there are those two textbooks I uh, mentioned uh, by Geoffrey uh, uh, Tagliaferro, uh, Stephen Lobel, and Noreen Ritzman, uh, one in 2009 and the updated version in uh, 2016. I would seem to read them both. Uh, because it's an overview of how neoclassical realism evolved. There are many generations of neoclassical realists already, and there, there's still something connecting them all under this umbrella. Hmm. 
about European foreign policy. Wow, gosh, there are so many books here. <laughs> so um, it's very difficult. But I would say that I think Tanya Borzel wrote some very interesting books on European foreign policy. Um, and really, there's, uh, depending on where you want to go with your study of European foreign policy, there, there are many, many um, great articles and books here. And um, I would just say for the ones like me passionate about Central Asia and European Union, uh, Olga Linda Spicer wrote a very good book about how the European Union foreign policy is really um, done uh, in Central Asia. Um, I, I think it's a it's brilliant book. Whereas for Romanian foreign policy, uh, there are uh, many articles in Romanian, of course, and uh, uh, yeah, there are. Uh, we are very proud to write about ourselves. But um, there's um, there's a graduate of my alma mater who's currently in the United States, uh, Julia Joja. Uh, she's writing quite a lot on uh, Romanian foreign policy. And uh, her PhD was on the strategic culture of Romania in the post-communist um, uh, period. Mm -hmm. uh, so she currently deals with how Romania is positioning itself in the Black Sea area. So I really think you should check her out. She's writing a lot on, in English, and she can also give you insights in other authors writing about Romania. Okay, so thank you very much for those references and, and for those recommendations. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to have you. Thanks a lot for inviting me. It was a very, very interesting discussion. I felt like I was, uh, you know, like in the uh, Renaissance period, talking about ideas, changing, <laughs> uh, changing ideas. And I really think this is a brilliant thing that you're doing. It's very nurturing for us researchers to talk about our own work, but to see it from other perspectives as well. Thank you so much, Iran. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So you've been listening to the 18th episode of the Pollock Podcast with me, Kieran O'Meara, and my guest, Anna Maria Angelescu, from the National University of Political Studies and Public Administration in Bucharest, chatting about neoclassical realism and Romania's relations with Europe and Central Asia alongside European foreign policy. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and click on that little follow button so that the next episode appears automatically in your library on whatever particular platform you're using. Also, please do not forget to go to the new website at www.thinkpollet.com. Thank you very much.